all joking aside, uh, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, a uh, week and a half ago, uh, Pastor Nathan and I, we drove out to Phoenix, Arizona uh, for a quick 48-hour trip to a conference called Best Practices uh, for Ministry. And there were 2,700 people there from all over the United States and the world, and it was awesome. It was a uh, a mountaintop experience, you might say. And on the way out there, uh, I snapped a few pictures of the hills out by Palm Springs, right? I mean, check out all this snow, right? As Orange Countyans, when we think of snow, we think somewhere else, right? We think mountains, we think mountaintops, we think vacation, we think destination, we think Big Bear or Mammoth, we think sledding, skiing, snowboarding, we think about it all being up there, up on the top of the mountain, Right? Snow for us is a place that you vacation to, right? It's a place that you visit. Well, here's another shot. Check out how low that snow level is. It was practically on the ground. And all that stuff that we usually think that's way up there on the mountain was down in the valley. In fact, as we were driving out, I heard rumors at the very same time uh, that we were getting snow in Orange County. In Irvine and in Mission Viejo, my kids were telling me their friends had actually seen snow in Orange County. And then I saw this picture of, of it snowing out at Silverado Canyon. Yeah, that's like Silverado Canyon. It was snowing last week in Orange County. I'm like, yeah, you guys are shocked, right? That's not Photoshop. That's from the Orange County Register, all right? People were just pumped up, right? The snow was here. The stuff that's usually way up there on the mountain came down to us in the valley, in the canyons, on the plains. I mean, check out this lady, right? The following day, they had built a snowman. This is Silverado Canyon, okay? This is not Big Bear. It's not Mammoth. It's Orange County. And you kind of got to love it when the wonder of the mountain tops, the glory of the mountains comes down to us here in the valley, in the canyon, in the plain, in the lowland. It's exciting, right? It's exhilarating. It makes you want to build a, a snowman. Okay, you got that. I almost sang it, all right? <laughs> all right, I almost did. All right. Maybe later, okay. All right, <clears throat> it makes everyday life kind of down in the valley better. But if we're honest with ourselves, it wasn't as good as going up to Big Bear. It wouldn't be as good as going up to Mammoth where they got 20 feet of snow, right? But it sure makes life a little bit better, a little bit nicer down here on the plains. Basically, that sort of image, that sort of picture is something like that we have going on in our Bible reading today, in the life of Jesus today. First, we're going to encounter a mountaintop experience, but we're going to see that on either side of the mountain there is a valley. So Peter, James, and John, they go up and have this mountaintop experience. It's called the Transfiguration. And every Sunday before we enter into the Lenten season, we look at this event in the life of Jesus. So if you have your handout or your Bible, it'll be up on the screen, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. It says this, it says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him. He went up on a mountain to pray. Mountains are places where people meet God. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. You might remember Moses going up Mount Sinai to meet with God. And in verse 29, it says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face, it changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Bright as lightning, you might say white as snow, something heavenly, something otherworldly, no natural explanation could do that is going on here. It says that Jesus, the person, the man, is more than just a person, more than just a man, more than just a rabbi, more than just a teacher. 
Verse 30 says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And so we ask ourselves, why would Moses and Elijah sort of show up these people from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, both of them prophetic? Well, you look at Moses. Moses was the deliverer, right? He led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus from slavery, as we sang about this morning, to freedom. And the people were expecting a prophet like Moses because in Deuteronomy 18, their prophecy had said a prophet like Moses would come. And when it comes to Elijah, Elijah was supposed to appear at the beginning of that end of time, that ultimate redemption of God. And so the presence of Moses and Elijah was saying that something big is happening here with Jesus. That Jesus will deliver. Jesus will rescue. Jesus will free us from slavery. The kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus. Verse 31 continues on. It says this. They spoke about his departure. Actually, in the Greek there, it's exodus. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And what he's referring there is ultimately to his crucifixion, his exodus, his departure, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Verse 32, Peter and his companions, they were, they were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. I love that line there, they saw his glory. I mean, we could spend a lot of time, we could mine the depths of that forever, but as I was pausing on that phrase right there, they saw his glory, it made me think, when have I seen the glory of Jesus? I think it's important for us this morning to sort of pause and ask ourselves, when have we seen, when have we experienced, when have we known the glory of Jesus? Where was it in your life? When was it? What was it like? What comes to your mind when I ask you, when have you experienced the glory of Jesus in your life? Verse 33 continues and says, As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love that it says it in the Bible in parentheses. It's in the Bible. He did not know what he was saying, right? He's just kind of babbling. He didn't get it. He didn't know what was happening. He's like, uh, let's put up some tents and camp out up here. And some people, they say, well, maybe he was associating it with the Old Testament Feast of Booths. He was a connection to the, which we had a connection to the final redemption. Other people are saying, well, I think he's just kind of, let's hang out up here on the mountain because life is good up here. We've got Jesus, we've got Moses, we've got Elijah. But either way, he's sort of putting Elijah and Moses on the same playing field, on the same level as Jesus. So right in the middle of his sort of babbling and talking, God the Father intervenes. Verse 34 says, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And this wasn't just some storm front moving in, right? This is, we go back to the Old Testament. We see the image of the cloud, the presence of God leading the Old Testament people of Israel through the desert. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son. Whom I have chosen. Listen to him. He doesn't say listen to Moses. He doesn't say listen to Elijah. He doesn't say listen to the world. He doesn't say listen to your heart. He doesn't say listen to all these other voices out there. He says listen to my son. Listen to Jesus. And the more you pause and think about those words, on the one hand, they are convicting and they are terrifying. But on the other hand, they are also liberating. 
They are freeing words. Because I don't know about you, but in my own life, I listen to way too many voices. The voices of fear, the voice of approval, the voice of individualism, the voice of doubt, the voice of the world, the voice of materialism, the voice of capitalism, the voice of whatever. There are all these voices out there vying for our attention, but the Heavenly Father is actually liberating Peter, James, and John, and you and me from all of that. He's got one voice to listen to. It's pretty awesome and powerful when you think about it and you look at this. You you may remember about a few weeks ago, we were studying the baptism of Jesus, right? And at the baptism of Jesus, all the disciples were able to hear the heavenly Father speak to Jesus the Son, right? Luke 3 verse 22 said, the Father said, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now here, six chapters later, the Father is talking directly to the disciples, They're not just eavesdropping in. They're talking, uh, the Father's talking directly to them. And we see that these disciples are being brought closer and closer in relationship to the Father through Jesus. The Father says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You don't have to listen to all those voices vying for your allegiance. You don't have to listen to all the voices in the world. You don't have to listen to all the voices in your mind. You don't have to listen to all the voices of brokenness. Listen clearly to the voice of Jesus. It's almost as if the Father is saying, as you have now seen clearly the glory of Jesus up on this mountain, listen now clearly to his voice. Then in verse 36, when the voice had spoken, then they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves. They did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So all of a sudden, God takes away Moses. God takes away Elijah. Jesus is the only one there. And it says God is saying that Moses and Elijah are only minor players here. The glory is in Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah. And what I love about this text, and I maybe have shared this with you before, there's an interesting irony because everything has been about visuals. Everything has been about sight, lightning, bright, white. The face of Jesus, Moses, Elijah, the mountain, maybe it was snow-capped, I don't know, the cloud. And then there's this command. Everything's been visual, everything's been sight. Then there's this command from the Father to the disciples. It says, listen. And then what does Jesus say? He doesn't say anything. He's quiet. Now his followers need to listen to him, but what exactly are they, what exactly are we Supposed to listen to. Well, you see, on either side of any mountain is usually a valley or a plain or a canyon, right? Either side of this mountaintop of experience for Peter, James, and John, there are some valleys, deep valleys. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, right before this mountaintop experience, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. Right after it, 9, verse 44, he says, I'm going to be handed over to the hands of men. And the disciples are like, whoa. We don't want any of that. We want all the glory. We want to go up on the mountain, but we wouldn't want to go live down here in the valley. We want all the glory. We don't want any of the pain. They couldn't get how for Jesus that his weakness, his humiliation, his suffering, his sacrifice down here in the valley is intricately connected to his power and his glory. To see Jesus in all of his glory, one must see how his power merges with suffering and sacrifice. In fact, 
And maybe we've done this before. I don't know if I have with you. It's really interesting, and we're getting a really deep, but it's really interesting to compare the transfiguration of Jesus to his crucifixion. When you look at the transfiguration, we see Jesus exalted, but we look at... uh, We look at the cross and we see him humiliated. We see him surrounded by saints and then by sinners. We see him shrouded with light, clothed with bright light. But on the cross, he's wrapped in a garment of darkness. Up on the mountain, his glory is revealed just to a few. But on the cross, his suffering is displayed to all humanity. On the mountain, he's surrounded by two prophets. On the cross, he's surrounded by two thieves. On the mountain, his garments glisten in glory. But up on down on the cross, his garments are stripped, humiliated. Up on the mountain, three male disciples view him up close. On the cross, three female disciples view him suffering from afar. Up on the mountain, God the Father says, this is my son. Down on the cross, the Roman centurion, after he died, says, surely this was a righteous and innocent man. And when we begin to look at the mountain and we look at the valley, we begin to see something radical about Jesus. We begin to see that the way of Jesus is far different than the way of this world. And that his path to that glorious mountain is down through a valley of weakness and humiliation and suffering and shadowy death. Up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, they're given just a brief glimpse of the glory that is to come. But that glory would only come by way of the cross. The Father says, listen to him. And in fact, one of the most powerful words Jesus says to his disciples right before they go up the mountain, right before they go up that mount of transfiguration, right before they hear the heavenly Father say, listen to him. And maybe these words were maybe ringing around in their minds. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? There's a peace inside each and every one of us that we want to gain the whole world, right? I want the world. We call it success. We call it security. We call it complete rational clarity. We we call it financial superiority. We call it control or domination or power or prestige or honor and glory. We sugarcoat all these sort of things. But we want the world. And it sort of seeps into even the church, even to our families, even to our marriages, even into your pastor's hearts. And that's when we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon me. And today, that's what he's doing. We are here to receive that mercy. In this very moment, his mercy is falling upon us. In this very moment, he's drawing us up onto the mountain, or better yet, maybe that glory is coming down to us here on the plain in the valley. Maybe it's snowing in Orange County right now. And we're seeing now that his lightning, bright, snow-white glory, it's just unique. It's different. He's not a teacher. He's not just a moral guide. He's not just a cool dude. He's not just a prophet. He's just not just a sage. He's the son of God. 
And while he had every right to complete power and glory and honor and fame and prestige, he says, my way is different. And if you want to be my disciples, if you want to follow me, he says, I'm I'm inviting you to a new way of life. Be my apprentice, he says. It's going to be the greatest challenge and the most liberating reality for you. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily. On the one hand, when we hear that first part, deny yourself, it sounds like a bunch of law and it sounds like something that we have to do and it sounds like it's going to be really hard. And the answer is, yes, it is. But when you also hear that deny yourself, I think you could also hear a word of liberation a word of freedom there, a word of gospel, because I'm telling you, living your life only for yourself, that's hard work. It's tiring. It's never-ending, and you never get what you think you deserve. And when Jesus says deny yourself, he's given us freedom to let that idol go, to find our true self, to save our souls, to be freed from greed and from individualism and from greatness and from success and from the myth of certainty and from a whole bunch of other me-centered pursuits. Deny yourself, he says. Take up your cross daily. Taking up your cross. Follow me, he's saying, into the greatest mission of all, to bring the actual presence of God to all of humanity. That's hard work. That's challenging work, and it means that we're going to endure hardships in this life, brokenness in our own lives, brokenness out there coming into our lives, sacrifice and suffering, life down in the valley. But I love when Jesus says, take up your cross daily. That word daily, to me, it's like a gift, because I don't know about you, but for me, it's a daily thing, maybe even hourly thing, sometimes every minute. But I'm encouraged by Jesus saying, take up your cross daily because he's telling us that we are going to have crosses to bear. Sometimes you may be looking at your life right now and you're like, why do I got to bear this cross? Or he's like, oh yeah. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. Every day you're going to need to bear them. But his glory, his glory up on the, from the mountain is the only way that we can make it through and make it to the cross. Peter, James, and John, they, every single one of those guys died for their faith. They went through the valley of the shadow of death for their faith in Jesus. But it was the glory of the transfiguration, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of the ascension, the glory that Jesus said, I'm going to come again, I'm coming back for you. All of that glory sustained them through life in the valley because they had seen, they had experienced his glory. It's a good question for us today. Have we seen his glory? Have we experienced the glory of Jesus in our lives? I'd argue that you have a whole bunch. Sometimes we just sort of need to be reminded of it. Keep our eyes open for the snow falling upon us in Orange County. Glory falling upon us down in the canyon, down in the valley. And it might look for you this week, it might be that you're going to open up the word of God this week and you're going to hear God's word speak directly to your heart and your life. You will experience the glory of God in a small and powerful way. Take the handout home, open your text, read over and over again and see the glory of God come into your life. 
When we gather together here in church, together as God's people in worship, like right now, we're experiencing the glory. As we sing praises to him, we're experiencing the glory. When we gather in our life groups, in our Bible studies, the glory of God is falling upon us. When we pray for each other in our families, with our spouses, with our children, in our life groups, the glory of God is falling upon us. This past week, I gathered with, I have like a pastor life group, and it's one of the greatest things in my life. And we prayed over each other, and I just sensed the glory of God coming into our lives as we prayed for each other. It was awesome mountaintop experience coming down to the valley. And we could keep on going, right? Connect to God, grow together, share Christ. These experiences are all over the place. Sometimes we just open our eyes to see the glory falling upon us. But it's experiences like those that the glory of Jesus falls like white, bright, lightning, snow upon us. And we see, we see, and we experience his glory, and we realize who he is. And we hear the Heavenly Father's voice speaking directly to us directly to us from the cloud of his presence saying this is my son I love him and you don't have to listen to any other voice in this world again just listen to him 